You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Harrison Ford. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And uh, like every Sunday, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, You know, around this time of year, Brittany and I celebrate our coming to Richmond. Actually take the RUF at VCU job. Um, And, you know, it was also around that same time, this same time, 60 years ago, that I learned that the most... One of the most important people in your life is your plumber. Uh, So on day two of our being in Richmond, we were brand new homeowners. Uh, We were starting to get everything together. I was in the kitchen. I was putting um, a knife rack up on the wall. And after I'd put it up, I started to notice that there were uh, like beads of water kind of dripping down from it. So I took the knife rack off, and as I unscrewed the last screw, just a stream of water just shot across the room. And uh, as it turns out, I had not hit a stud, but I'd hit a water line. So we, you know, I'm not handy. These are very soft pastor's hands. Um, And so uh, we immediately freaked out and started calling uh, plumbers. But the problem was, they'd be like, oh yeah, we'll be there tomorrow. And it's like, if you're there tomorrow, our house is going to be full of water. Um, but finally, we found our savior, a plumber named Sean. And he came in about, uh, we, and I think now several of you use Sean because of this event. Uh, he came in about 30 minutes and thankfully was ever able to fix everything up. And as Sean was cleaning up from the work, he had to do a lot. He had to like cut out part of the wall and re-drywall. It was, it was not great. Um, but as he was cleaning up from the work, I asked him, I was like, hey, can I still put the knife rack on this wall just in a different spot? And he was like, yeah, sure. He's like, just don't go to the left of the, of the area you did it in, because if you do that, you're going to hit the sewage line. And he's like, you won't know that you've hit that until you smell it. And that's going to be a much bigger job. And it was in that moment that Sean just like bumped way up the list for me. He became, like, aside from wife and kids, the most important person in my life. Um, you know, I looked at Sean with, like, the way, I looked at him, like, the way that when a dog is pulled out of a burning building, the way a dog looks at its rescuer is, like, a lot of the way that I looked at Sean in that moment. And, you know, I think that, uh, this may feel like a weird pivot, um, But I think that we actually see a similar dynamic going on in today's text. Because this is true of our relationship with Christ. You see, if we think that we're essentially good people, and our life is mostly fine, not perfect, but good enough, if we think that, then uh, Jesus is is just always going to be like a plumber is to a renter. You're never going to really appreciate him like a homeowner does. If Jesus, if you look and say, you know what, I kind of got this. Jesus is cool, but, you know, I don't really need him that much. Um, you may like what he says, but you're never going to worship him. You may think that he's a good moral teacher, uh, but you're never going to love him. And it's not until you've hit the sewage line, as it were, in your life, 
that you're going to really appreciate for who, Jesus for who he is. It's not, it's not until you can look and say that I am a very great sinner until you'll see Jesus as a very great Savior. So if you would, please open, me, open up with me to uh, Luke 7. We're going to look at verses 36 through 50. Luke 7, you can find this, of course, in your Bible or in the worship guide if you have that. 36 through 50, it begins like this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, uh, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, said, and he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender two, had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Then, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight this afternoon, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So over the past uh, several weeks, we've been looking at Luke 7 through 9, and we're asking two kind of framing questions for these passages. Who is Jesus, and how should we respond to Jesus? And I think that there's no better framework with which to actually approach this text because those two questions really lay out the basic movements of this story. You see, the passage begins with Jesus dining at the home of Simon, who is a Pharisee. <laughs> I thought that was a firework. <laughs> um, it was fairly common at the time for a deeply religious person like Simon to have a Pharisee or to have a rabbi over to, to their house for dinner. And then the rabbi would sometimes give like a teaching in the middle of it to the people who were there. And just as an aside, this is a practice that I recommend. Um, 
You know, if you want to throw a dinner party and have someone give a sermon in the middle of it, I'm your man. Hit me up. But it's obvious in the text that Simon has a motive here. He's having Jesus over for dinner because he wants to know who Jesus really is. In many ways, he's asking the same question that we're asking. Who is Jesus? And then something happens during the dinner party that tells Simon all that he needs to know about Jesus. You see, because in the middle of it, a a hysterical woman comes in and she starts to wet Jesus' feet with her tears and she's kissing his feet and anointing them with oil. And of course, this, we read, isn't just any woman. The text that says that she's a woman of the city, which is a, a kind of a discreet way of saying that she was a prostitute. And what she's doing to Jesus actually has allusions, um, overtones to that work. She's kissing Jesus' feet. She's letting her hair down. And that might not seem like much to us, but at that time in the ancient Near East, To let your hair down was to indicate intimacy, um, like the intimacy shared between lovers. And it was actually uh, within Jewish law, if a woman let her hair down in the presence of another man, her husband could have lawfully divorced her. And so all of this scandalized Simon the Pharisee. In verse 39, we overhear him kind of commenting to himself, and he says, you know, whoever this guy is, he's obviously not much because he doesn't realize what's going on right now. Or if he does, there's something crazier going on. And it's here we see that Simon was fundamentally mistaken about Jesus's identity. You see, Simon thought that Jesus, we see this in the text, he thought that uh, Jesus was a prophet. And so Jesus's job, he thought, would have been to come in and tell everyone they need to get their lives in order. I mean, this is what happens in the Old Testament. Whenever Israel went into a time of great uh, apostasy or idolatry, God would send a prophet, and the prophet would warn them of God's coming judgment and say, okay, look, because of this, you need to repent and appeal to God's deep and wide mercy. And this is why Simon thought that he that Jesus should have rebuked the woman and sent her away. Jesus is, is supposed to be a, an example of, of, of moral purity for the community. But here he is associating with someone who was widely known as a sinner. And this is why Simon ultimately and wrongfully concludes about Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon misjudged Jesus, because not only is he a prophet, but he is a prophet, a priest, and a king. He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament offices. He is the long-anticipated Messiah. And he came not to rebuke sinners and to send them away, but rather to save sinners by bringing them in. Literally, by uniting them to himself. And Simon should have known this as someone who is well-versed in the Old Testament. I mean, think about uh, what Avery read for us earlier from Isaiah 6. Surely, speaking about the Messiah, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. In Isaiah's prophecy, it, it assumes that the Messiah not only a reception of sinners, but an identification with them, a solidarity even with them. The Messiah is going to take their sins upon him. And now I recognize this may sound like Christianity 101, and in many cases it is. It's the fundamental, uh, this is the fundamental declaration of the gospel. But it, it, it's so easy for, for us, even those of us who believe this, even those of us who know this, the gospel, it's so easy for us to slip back into a way of thinking that assumes that Jesus is, I've said this before, kind of like a cosmic Santa Claus. Like he's up in heaven checking the list to see who's naughty or nice, and he's giving the good kids heaven and the bad kids hell. But friends, that's not who Jesus is. A couple of chapters earlier in Luke 5, Jesus says this about himself. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come, like Simon thought, to reward the righteous, but instead he came to save the lost. Who is Jesus? He's the friend and forgiver of sinners. And it's so important to keep this at all times in front of us because it's going to affect the way that we respond to Jesus. You see, this passage is basically a comparison between these two people, Simon the Pharisee and uh, the woman of the city. And the fundamental difference between the two of them is how they viewed themselves in relationship to Jesus. You know, Simon, again, thought that Jesus had come to reward the people who kept the rules, to reward the people who did the right things. But the woman here, she realized that the opposite is true. Jesus came not for the ones who kept the rules, but for the ones who break the rules. Not the ones who do the good things, but the people who can't help but doing bad things. And this is what Jesus is trying to underscore in the, in the short parable that he tells here. He says that there, there's a money lender, and there's two people who owe this uh, money lender money. One owes them five, 50 denarii, the other owes them 500. But notice here that the principle is that despite the sum owed, neither could pay. One owed 50, one owed 500, it doesn't matter. Both were in debt over their heads. And the same is true here of Simon and the woman. You know, Simon, with his zeal for keeping the law of God, may have appeared to be less the sinner than the woman. This woman who's living in flagrant immorality. But the reality is that neither of them are good enough. Again, let's go back to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 says that all we like sheep have gone astray. All. Everyone. Simon, the woman, you, me. Everyone has gone astray. And so everyone needs 
a Savior that forgives sins. The difference between Simon and the woman was that one recognized this fact and the other didn't. She realized that Simon didn't. You know, for Simon, Jesus was just an accessory to his life, just someone who's going to come and have dinner with him, someone he's kind of curious about. But for the woman, Jesus is the very center of her attention. You know, for, for Simon, it, Simon sits above Jesus in judgment, proclaiming, oh, this man can't be a prophet. But the woman comes in and anoints Jesus' feet with oil. He, she anoints him as a savior. The, Simon, he, he's unmoved. He's unimpressed with Jesus. But the woman here, she she's, can't help but cry when she comes into Jesus' presence. And I wonder, I wonder which one you identify with today. I wonder which one I identify with today. You know, in the story, I think Jesus is setting up this really strong contrast uh, in order for us to ask this question. Deep down in my heart, uh, do I have a lot, am I a lot more like Simon or am I a lot more like this woman of the city who is a great sinner? You know, there are so many ways that we can be like Simon. You know, the way of Simon is thinking that our good works can justify us. Be they religious, attending church, praying, reading scripture, going to city group, having a really deep theological knowledge. Or be they irreligious, Voting for the right political party, being on the right side of a, of a social issue, or just trying to live as a decent moral person. But the reality is that, that none of those things can do away with the curse of sin in our life. I mean, think about what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Because of our sin, we're dead. We're dead in our trespasses. It's not like, oh uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're wounded. You've, you're maimed in your trespasses. He says you're dead. And there's nothing that a dead person can do to bring themselves back to life. The way of Simon is also thinking that we, rather than Scripture, define who Jesus is. As if his identity as the Son of God, the Lord of all creation, the Saviors of sinners, is contingent upon our approval. You know, so many of us are in here asking this question deeply in our hearts. Who is Jesus? In some ways, we're, we're a lot like Simon today in that. And if, if that's you, if you're wrestling with who Jesus is, I'm so glad that you're here. There's no, I, there's no better place than you can be right now. But what I want you to realize is that regardless of what you think about Jesus, it doesn't change who he is. You see, your, your approval or belief in Jesus isn't what enthrones him as the Lord of creation. He currently sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so the question that's before all of us is, is will we submit to his loving, kind rule or will we rebel against it the way of simon is also thinking that there are some people are some sins 
that are so far gone that they're beyond the reach of God's grace. But that's a conflation between sin as a discrete action and sin as a condition. You see, throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis 3, what we see is that sin is, is mostly talked about a condition, something that has, uh, because of the fall, a curse that has been put over the entire world and into, over each of our hearts. And of, of course, you know, sin is also discrete acts, things that we do that rebel against God. But more, more so, it's this condition. And a condition you can't work yourself out of. You know, we can try and be better people. We can try and stop doing bad things and doing good things. But the Bible says that doesn't get you out of the debt that Jesus is talking about here in this passage. You know, we may think that Simon, in some sense, lived a more moral life than this woman. But it, it, it doesn't change the fact that both of them were equally in bondage to sin and equally needed a Savior, namely Jesus. There are so many ways that we can be like Simon. But there are also ways in which we can be like this woman of the city. You know, the, the way of the woman of the city, it's, it's the way of faith. Like this woman who admitted that she's a great sinner in need of a Savior. And this is why we ask you when we join the church, we ask you the first membership vow says this, Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, and without hope, save in His sovereign mercy? You see, that's, that's the essential confession of the Christian life. I'm a sinner in need of salvation. And unless you can answer that question in the affirmative, Jesus is never going to be at the center of your person. He's always going to be like he was to Simon, just kind of an accessory. Someone floating in, in just one part of my life, but not in my heart. The way of the woman is also the way of love. You know, once this woman used her hair and her lips, and her ointment in service of sin. But now, she's using them in service and in worship of Jesus. Her encounter with the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus has totally reoriented her love, her heart. And the reality is, that's true for us as well. Friends, if, if you here are in Christ, if you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, then God is going to be, until your deathbed, He's always going to be turning your heart away from yourself and towards sin and towards Him. Just like this woman that we see in this passage. He's going to be creating within you a new love. And because of this love for Christ, well, you see, with this, the, this woman's love for Jesus scandalized Simon and uh, presumably the people at the, at the party. And the reality is, friends, is that it, it, as Jesus makes your heart more and more warm towards him, as he increases love for him, your acts of love and worship are going to seem indecent and weird and off-putting to the world. 
But the good news is that as the Holy Spirit works within us to create more and more and more love for Jesus, we're going to desire less and less of the love and approval of the world around us. Despite what anyone thought, this woman was centered upon Jesus, the lover of her soul. And finally, the way of the woman drawn from 1 Corinthians 13 is also hope. You know, the the text says that this woman's um, sins were notorious throughout the city. She was known as a sinner, right? So she would be probably walking along the street and someone would scowl at her or maybe move to the other side of the street. People in the town probably told their kids, you better stay on the straight and narrow or you're going to end up like her. She seemed beyond hope. And I imagine that she didn't have much hope for herself either. Because those two things often uh, work hand in hand. When others lose hope in us, we lose hope in ourselves. But there was one person who did have hope for her, and that was Jesus. You see, she was a sinner, and that is Jesus' type. Jesus came for sinners. And friends, if you're in here today, and you're a sinner, and spoiler alert, you are Jesus came for you. You're his type. He didn't come for some dressed up, pretty version of you. He came for the sinner that is you. Back in 2013, um, Dove Soaps came out with an ad campaign called Real Beauty. And uh, the tagline for for the campaign was, you're more beautiful than you think. And it was a pretty ingenious and, and very moving um, ad campaign. You should look them up later. Um, basically what, what happened is uh, they would bring these women into a room um, with a forensic artist. You know, a forensic artist is someone who you can just kind of like describe some of uh, your features or someone else's features and they'll draw an accurate portrait of that person. Um, so the forensic artist met, uh, you know, in private with, he, with each of these women. And he would ask them questions about their features. You know, tell me about your chin. Tell me about your face. Tell me about your cheeks. And the women, uh, when they were describing themselves, they were always pretty negative. You know, my, mom always said I had a really big chin. Or I just think my cheeks are, are really fat and round. Um, I just feel like my forehead's really tall. And then they would leave the room. And what you don't really know in the commercial is that before that, there was another set of women who had met with these women. And the Dove people had said, hey, we want you to get to know them and really pay attention to their facial features. So then those group of women are brought in, and they describe to the forensic artist those people that had just described their features. And their tone was remarkably different. They would say, oh, you know, she has this really, she has this really uh, cute chin, or she has this really adorable nose, or whenever, you know, whenever she tells a story, her eyes really light up the room. And then the forensic artist would do his work, and they'd bring back in the first set of women, and they would see side by side uh, the artist's depiction of how they describe themselves and the artist's depiction of how other people describe them. 
And I just remember this, the shot of this one woman. She's just standing there, um, silent, and you, know, you can kind of tell that tears are welling up in her eyes because she's getting a visual picture of her self-loathing, frankly. Um, and then she, she starts to talk about, she says, in the picture where she described herself, she says, I look closed off and fatter and sadder. And then she describes the second one, the picture where someone else had described her, and she said, in this picture, I look more open, I look more friendly, and I look more happy. Friends, I, I recognize that in me spending so much time today telling you that um, in order to embrace Christ, you have to own that you're a sinner. There is a way in which you can hear that in which you th- might think that I'm telling you that you have to engage in self-loathing. Right? There's this kind of, uh, people call it worm theology. Oh, I'm nothing better than a worm in the ground. And, and that is the opposite of what I'm trying to tell you. What I'm trying to tell you is, like the Dove campaign says, you're more beautiful than you know. Because you see, when we look at ourselves in the mirror in the morning, we look at ourselves and we see ourselves through the prism of the curse of sin and the fall. And all we see is our flaws, all we see is the things that we do wrong, all, the th- all we see are the ways in which we need to be better and do better. But when we look at ourselves, when we're seen through the eyes of Christ, we're seen as beloved the very radiance of the image of God himself, more beautiful than you know, frankly, more beautiful than you can imagine. So friends, admitting your sin isn't defeatist or oppressive or self-loathing, but rather it's walking in the way of hope. Hope that there is a day in which I will live past and beyond the sins that ruin me and my friends and the world. Hope that one day the brokenness of myself doesn't define who I am, but rather I'm defined by the love and embrace of Christ himself. That love and embrace that we experience in part now, one day we'll experience forever in full will eternally share in the very glory of God himself, so radiant and so alive that the sun will seem dim and pale. So friends, if you're in here today and you see yourself as a great sinner and you see Christ as a great, sin, as a great Savior, this hope is yours. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for this uh, portion of Scripture. Um, It's a hard message to hear that we're sinners, but uh, Father, we live every day with ourselves, and we know that we are. So Father, we thank you for the good news that you came um, not for the people who keep the rules. You came not for the best version of ourselves. You didn't come for the best me, but rather you came for sinners. You came for the worst me. And you came not to leave us in that sin, but rather to redeem us and to make us whole and to heal us. Father, we pray, would you give us this hope of heaven that one day we'll live past and beyond the brokenness of this world in a renewed creation and with a renewed self in which we forever experience the glory of your love and embrace in Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.